Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, Julie. Hey, Jessica. I loved this episode. I think it is the coziest, loveliest format. I love the thought of feeling as if we're all in a room having a potluck, talking with our special guest. And what a special guest we have today. I know. I was like, it's so amazing. This guest is focusing with us on picture books. I feel like every answer applied literally to all genres. It was fascinating how you can go from like someone that represents literary to someone that represents, you know, thrillers to picture books and it all applies. It all, it all, you can always find something that really appeals and you can learn from. So our special guest is Sarah Sargent, who is a senior executive editor at Penguin Random House. Um, She has years and years of experience. She knows all the things. You'll be able to hear in her voice that she just knows so much about the industry. And I loved that she was in the room with her writers and answering their questions. And um, you'll hear that throughout the episode. I just, I loved her thoughtfulness and her knowledge. I did too. Everyone, you Enjoy it. Enjoy every minute of this episode. All right, let's get started. You guys, welcome. Today we have Sarah Sargent. Uh, Sarah, tell us about yourself, all the amazing things. Well, first of all, thank you two so much for having me. I'm so excited to do uh, my first podcast with this community. So uh, I really appreciate it. I am a senior executive editor at Random House Books for Young Readers, which is an imprint of Random House Children's Books. Um, My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I've been at Random House for about four and a half years now and have been in the publishing industry for 14 years. I started at HarperCollins and I've also worked at Simon & Schuster. And now I've been here for almost a handful of years. My list is very eclectic. I do picture books mostly, and I also do some middle grade and some YA. I do step into reading, which is our early reader line. And yeah, that's sort of professionally the the summary. Uh, I live in Brooklyn and I've lived in Brooklyn for 14 years too. So there was some discussion in our office when we were writing up the copy for this, because I had put without much thought, Sarah is a big deal. And everyone is like, is that is that a little too like on the nose? No, Sarah is a big deal. So, but now um, I have to prove it. Is that what I'm? Well, about to actually, do? what I was going to ask is, can you explain to us how one gets to be a senior executive <laughs> editor and what that means? Sure. Um. So the my trajectory, I guess. So I started as an editorial assistant, and Jessica, feel free, or either one of you, feel free to interrupt me if there's anything you think would be helpful people want to know more about. Sometimes I don't know what people don't know. So feel free to interrupt. So I started as an editorial assistant at Balzer and Bray, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, Alessandra Balzer and Donna Bray, two like legends within the children's book industry. Alessandra was Mo Willems editor. Um, So I started as Alessandra's assistant and I was at Harper for, I don't know, something like four or five years. And then I went over to Simon & Schuster. I was going to focus on young adult books at Simon Pulse. And then a 
about a year into working at SNS and I loved the team that I was working on, I saw a job posting back at Harper <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, <laughs> that looks like a job I would really love. And I had just left Harper as an associate editor and the job posting was for like four spots higher, I think it was or something. And I went back to them and I was like, yeah, I mean, if you want to have me back, this is the level that, that I'm happy to join you with again. Um, so I guess that was sort of the biggest leap that I made in my career is going from Simon and Schuster back to HarperCollins. And then I started kind of a different trajectory from there. I was working on books that had um, some sort of component that, you know, was a little bit undefined, but I was trying to look for books that felt different and look for, uh, to think of stories that maybe weren't necessarily coming to my inbox through agents and on submission, but to think about some things that I wished were, that I was seeing and then trying to work with writers and sort of reverse engineer some stuff. And so, yeah, after a couple of years back at Harper, then I moved over to Random House, where I'm a senior executive editor, uh, uh, which is sounds like some very fancy words in front of the word editor, um, where I manage, uh, you know, two other two junior editors. And yeah, yesterday was a big day. I had two books on the New York Times bestseller debut. Yay! On the yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. There was one book on the middle grade list and one book on the picture book list. So yeah, that yesterday was a good day. A big well, day. that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So I guess <laughs> I'm trying to justify I both. was right. <laughs> and I would say this is my favorite part when you're like, I went up, did you say four slots? Like, like I mean, I was yeah, here, so, and yeah. then and now yeah, three here. or four. Yeah, three or four. Yes, in the span of like a year. Yeah. So we so love yeah. those stories. Yeah. <laughs> it really when I tell my the women that I manage that story, I think they're like, How did you? And you know, it's one of those things that just like it's a it's a belief in yourself, I think, or or knowing. I don't know. I don't even know if I would have said I knew my worth at 30, <laughs> but but something in me knew. So yeah, it just felt like the right thing. So well, I think it's an important story for everyone to hear because we all are looking for those jumps, you know, for, yeah. from like writing to getting agent, from getting agent to selling our books, from selling our books to get to the New York Times with Sarah, the amazing. Um, totally. So, yeah. so tell well, us before we move on though. Yeah. Okay, okay. So just a very quick, like associate yeah. editor, assistant editor, yeah. what does each person do? Sure. So, um, so edit, yeah. So editorial assistant is the first role and that really is, you're just, you're like the newest greenest. Um, and so you are assisting, you could be assisting one person. You could be assisting a couple of people, uh, I'll speak from my own experience and it's pretty similar, but you know, I'm reviewing, um, you know, uh, I mean, so different now because I remember sitting outside of Alessandra's office and physical like printouts of things, you know, would like come across like our desks and stuff. And so I would look at it as the first pass and think like, oh, this word, or, you know, this is wrong or like stacks, like huge stacks of manuscripts, like, you know, printouts of, oh my God, you know, printouts of like manuscripts and whatever. And we would read them. Now that's everything's digitized. So since the pandemic, we review everything digitally pretty much. And so, you know, you're supporting your boss and reading the first passes of things. You're drafting initial copy, um, you know, both for things that would end up on the jacket itself. And then also for things that we called, I think there they called them title sheets. And, and here we call them TIs, title information. And that is in preparation for big meetings internally. So when we have to turn around as editors and educate 
educate marketing, sales, publicity, school library marketing on our books. Like we put together these very comprehensive sheets about how we think the books should be pitched, why we acquired them, et cetera. Anyway, so we usually draft that for our bosses, um, you know, and then it was also mailing, copying, sending uh, copies of books to authors, um, you know, different things like that. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, reading submissions often, you know, we typically, um, you know, I would read a lot of my boss's submissions um, and then provide feedback as a, like a first glance. So yeah. And then from there assistant. So it really goes, like I would say like editorial assistant and then it's assistant editor and then it's associate editor. And sometimes the difference between those three kind of like junior levels, there could be the, the size of the leap in responsibility really varies depending on where the house is or what the imprint itself is. But you know, as you grow, you are taking on greater and greater responsibility. Perhaps, you know, you are working more closely with your boss's authors. Perhaps you are doing like first entire passes of editorial letters. Perhaps you're starting to acquire books on your own. You're definitely starting to network and form important relationships with agents. Um, you know, you're starting to get submissions, like I said, and you're acquiring your own books and shepherding shepherding them through the process. Um, so I would say that 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 those first three are sort of you know publishing has always had this sort of vibe as a um, oh gosh I mean mentorship yes but like apprenticeship and I think you know a lot of the, you know, a lot of the discussions that we've been having in the industry over the last few years, especially around like diversity and inclusion really focuses on the fact that living in New York City um, on a salary sort of coming right out of college and on the salaries we have in publishing, you know, is not always uh, feasible for, for people. And so we are looking at, so looking at kind of what are the ways to that when you, like when I am managing an employee of color or trying to mentor somebody who maybe doesn't live in New York City, like right now, the woman who's the editorial assistant on my team doesn't live in New York. So we hired someone who lives lives in Arkansas. Um, it was important to us to be able to find someone, um, you know, who was great for the job and also, you know, didn't need to live in New York. So, you know, it's also talking through different parts of publishing that can be that, that barrier to entry or that like super steep learning curve. So it's like really making sure that we are mentoring the people who work on our teams under us with us and making sure that they feel set up to then navigate the industry. So you're also at those levels, really trying to take in a lot from your boss and hopefully your boss is exposing you to lots of different parts of the process. And I do think because things are virtual now, that's sort of like room and being able to get in the room. And, you know, there's a lot more, there is more access to um, different meetings and different people. So anything I can, so that's through associate editor, I would say. Anything, questions, clarifications on that? Um, quick comment that I'm glad yeah. you touched on this very lately, but one of the yeah. things that I try to do and I imagine you try to do is not only give people an education on how to succeed while they're in the office, but how to keep themselves alive and fed and safe while they learn to live in the city too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting now having, yeah, like I said, one of the women who works with me, you know, doesn't live here. One is sometimes remote and sometimes here. So it is like a combination of really trying to, yeah, also pass on values around work-life balance and putting your phone away at the end of the day and, you know, enjoying the parts of the job that are great and also, you know, paying attention to your own mental health. So I think, yeah, safe. <laughs> 
in all ways. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Okay. I interrupted. Go on. You no, 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 I think no, no. Um, so then editor sort of is this, again, there's like a lot of fluidity between the levels, but editor really is like you're building, you are not assisting anybody. I think the biggest transition becomes like whatever level you hit where you're no longer assisting anyone and your only responsibility really is building your own list and you're not, you know, um, supporting anybody else. Um, and so, you know, editors have all different sort of senses of title count. It's really arranged. It's obviously very different for somebody who edits, you know, 50,000 word novels and somebody who does picture books, which is not to say that the work qualitatively is, you know, is, or a value judgment. It is simply the case that it is a different, you know, allocation of time to be work, to be editing novels and editing picture books. So the, you know, the size of the list will, will vary accordingly. And so being an editor really is like, you are sort you are supporting yourself in the sort of ecosystem of publishing. Like every book we look at, it's at its own, it is its own startup, you know, like every book is its own business venture. It has its own profit and loss statement. It has, you know, once it comes out and everything. So, you know, what the books cost to produce, how many we ship, what do we sell them? What price do we sell them at? All of those things. Um, you know, and as an editor, you're responsible for managing those costs. Not every single part marketing and publicity will also set budgets that I don't necessarily approve or not. Most I don't, but it is my responsibility as an editor to really keep an eye on costs and, and look at the profitability of the book. So by the time you're an editor, you are doing that for some amount of books. It could be five, it could be 10. And obviously, you know, you're working on many, many books. And then throughout the year, they're all coming out. So you're balancing books coming out. You're balancing books that have come out, books that are still in process. So it's time management and really making sure that you have a finger on kind of everything. And then senior editors, so like then you're, then there's editor, then there's senior editor, then there's executive editor, and then there's senior executive editor. <laughs> and then um, sort of those really the sort of sense of seniority could mean whether you're managing somebody. So at some point, you know, whether that is an assistant, whether that's somebody at a higher level, but typically the higher you are, the more people you would necessarily manage. It also just means that kind of like what you oversee and then what the expectations are relative to title count and how many books you're meant to publish a year will vary. So there's not, once you get into those like higher levels, you may not have, it's nothing specific or stratified or even same identical throughout the industry, but just a sense of like of success. I think those titles just like confer a sense of you've had successes, you have seniority, you have some sense of management, some higher level of expectation also. So I think that's, and then from there, it's like, you know, editorial director, publisher, and then you're managing kind of like larger groups, potentially imprints, different things, brands, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Okay. We have a great question from Paige. I was going to phrase this in a more, I was going to be yeah. like, can you do whatever you want? But Paige has a much more nuanced way of asking this page if you'd like to come up. And if any of you have questions, put them in the chat. Hey, Paige, come on down. Hi. Um, I'm kind of curious about um, kind of the individual editors. I'm sure it changes as you go up that whole chain of a million levels you just told us about. Um, but how how much do individual editors get to like decide what kind of books that they're taking on? Um, I know you have to really, you know, embrace a project and love a project to to buy it and acquire it and bring it to the acquisitions team. But are they, are editors trying to kind of like fill certain boxes or do they have missions at the certain, you know, times of the year from the higher ups and their bosses saying, hey, we need a adventure story or we need someone to tick this box or we need, 
you know, like how much do they, how much leeway do they get? Yeah. I thank you for the question. I would say it really varies and I can really, and I really don't speak, you know, I can only speak to the experiences I had. And I do think that like, I've obviously worked at, you know, at the three places I have worked and those are the bigger, some of the bigger publishing houses. And so I definitely do not speak for places that are not those or even speak for them now. Cause who knows what's changed, but in general, I, there's not often a mandate per se. I think that there can be a sense of what are the holes on the list, but that could be so broad. Um, I mean, I think that there can be things like we could use a holiday book, you know, and what holiday. So I think that's a, that's a lot of what we're looking at these days, or at least I am, especially as we try to make um, our offerings more diverse. I think we're recognizing festivals, holidays, and celebrations in certain, you know, cultures that may not be, you know, that are not your Christmas, Halloween, Easter. And so what, how do we represent, you know, those different cultures and those experiences? So what does a holiday mean? So things like that are like back to school time will also always be like a promotional moment. So, you know, do we feel, so holidays are sometimes our place where we do need to make sure we've got enough holiday content throughout the year. You know, the thing about publishing that I think is, I always think is so wild is that we are acquiring books now that won't come out for, you know, at minimum 18 months and at most, you know, years. So the trends that you're seeing right now across any category, like we can't really chase trends. Um, we'd already be behind if we were doing that. Um, and some, but, and then sometimes we also are like, couldn't possibly publish yet another unicorn book. And it's like, oh no, unicorns like do not go anywhere. They are not going away. And so sometimes we are surprised. Um, but you know, or like that, you know, I don't know, years ago, I remember being at Harper and it was sort of like princess dystopian books, like could not put another girl in a dress on the cover. And yet like, yes, you could. So I think <laughs> it is like, sorry, I very much remember that. <laughs> You're totally fine. Um, but so it really is like more than about chasing trends or it's about looking for what's new or maybe a version of what's working, but something slightly to the side of it. So this is an incredibly long answer to your question, but sometimes it's suggested to us, but I don't find that it really is ever like dictatorial. Like no one is ever coming to me and saying, you must do this. Part of the beauty of every editor is the individual vision that they bring. And so you're being hired because there is something about you that is unique and elemental and your perspective isn't the same as anybody else's. And there's something, hopefully if you're successful, that you are able to see in the creators themselves. And you draw that out as an editor, you see the promise and the premise of something. And so the more you're in this industry and the more successes you have, the more you are trusted to pursue what can you connect with because you've demonstrated an ability to connect like with audiences, with readers ultimately. And so that is where people start to, to really build a name for themselves. And then less and less are you told what to do. <laughs> so yeah. I love the idea of um, just an editor running around the office buying exactly what they want and no one can stop them. Like obviously they're they're brilliant. They're going to be choosing something for a reason. They wouldn't be in that position for no reason at all. But just the idea of someone running amok buying books makes me really happy. Um, not that anyone's yeah. causing trouble, but like just no, no. It, it sounds fun. Yeah. 
No, it's funny. I ran into a friend of mine or a, a very new friend of mine today on the subway and she actually didn't know what I did. And um, and just the like the look of awe on her face when I explained what I did in every like incremental step. She was like, oh, what kind of books? And I said, children's books. It was like the the like shock and awe just like grew. And she just and it really is. Sometimes it is hard to take in the immensity of what of what we do and just how incredible it is. I, sometimes it's like hard to really wrap your mind, my wrap my mind around. So, yeah, yeah, happy we to have be an- running amok, <laughs> acquiring things. So. We have another question, Rashida. Would you like to come down? Sure. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. Um. So I actually have a question because you said that it doesn't really follow trends. You're 18, sometimes more months out for a project going out. How do they determine how much marketing goes into that when you have no idea what's going to be on trend at the time? Oh, so the marketing budgets aren't decided until much, much closer to publication. So when you're acquiring the book, you, you know, when I acquire a book, I have a sense of sort of like, is this book going to be smaller, medium, huge? You know, we all there, you know, not every, not every book can be the biggest, biggest, biggest book um, is sort of the reality. And so we don't set, I don't set like marketing budgets at the time of acquisition that happens like once the book comes in and it's final. So with a picture book, it's like marketing budget wouldn't be determined until everybody can read the book with the full finalized text and finalized art. And then, you know, same would be true of a novel. Nobody's deciding anything until people like a lot of people, the company have read it, it's done, it's you know, finalized. So once that happens, you're, you're, that's being determined more like nine months ahead. Um, and so even still though, we, we have so many meetings in advance so that we can course correct. So if something is in the pipeline and it turns out that it like really is hitting a trend that no one saw coming, we, you know, we are able to then put more behind it or reallocate or switch gears or something like that. So we have the ability to be nimble, but you know, we're not even trying to do anything or let alone be nimble until about nine months in advance of publication. Nice. We have a lot of good directions we could go. Julie, what do you think? Well, I was just, I would want to go back in time because I like you're on the bus, you're telling, you know, a new friend about your amazing career. Like you're a maker of books. I mean, like, like that's, that's like every, like every book kid's dream. Right. So tell us how did, did, did you get into publishing? Did you always know was this was this kind of a surprise? Tell us your story of how you got it to where you are. Yeah, sure. So I grew up um, upstate in Buffalo. And when I was in high school, so I graduated, no, I finished my junior year of high school. So I would have been 17, I guess. And instead of like most normal kids who are going to spend the summer going like visiting colleges, I moved to New York City to do an internship at Miramax Books. That was possible through the generosity of my parents. Like that is um, a privilege that I know I have that, you know, not that few people would have. I I was able to do that. And I stayed in this like all girls dorm. (laughs) And so, So, uh, and I worked as an intern at Miramax Books and I loved it. I was obsessed with it. I mean, I would stay at work super late. I mean, I was a kid from the suburbs. Like we would order Chinese food and like diner food and get it delivered. Like we didn't have delivery. Like we had pizza maybe sometimes, but it was just like, I was obsessed and I was lonely because I didn't know anybody. So I never wanted to go home. So whoever was staying at the office, the latest, I was always there, always happy to do something else because 
like, I just didn't want to go home to my dorm to be by myself. So because of that, um, you know, I, I was working on adult books at the time and plenty of nonfiction and all of that. Like I were, I remember working on like Rudy Giuliani's memoir, all kinds of random stuff wow. worked on, like, you know, whatever looked at past pages or something. Yeah. And so then at that job, I met Jennifer Besser, who is now the head of Macmillan Children's. And she at the time was an editorial assistant for Jonathan Burnham, who is now like runs a lot of stuff at Harper. Um, That was the summer before senior year of college. I went to college freshman summer after college. I started to be I was torn between journalism and book publishing. So in college, I also interned at New York Magazine and Meet the Press in D.C. And so when I graduated, from college, I reconnected with Jen Besser and she had moved to Hyperion, Disney Hyperion. And honestly, if I will always say like if Jen had gone into cookbooks, I like would be in cookbooks. Like truly it's because of Jen that I ended up in children's books. And so I spent the summer interning with Donna and Alessandra and Jen at Disney Hyperion. And then I had already accepted a position in a master's program in at Northwestern to get my master's in journalism. So I had this like amazing summer working in children's books. And then I was already committed to this master's program. So I spent a year getting my master's in journalism, realized I didn't want to go into journalism, <laughs> which was a time-consuming, expensive way to make that life decision. But like, here we are. And then I moved back from, once I finished finished that in Chicago, I moved back to New York and tried to get a job in publishing. And the only job I could get was at a literary agency. And so for three months, I worked at a literary agency. I was an assistant. And then I got a call from Alessandra that her assistant was leaving. And did I want to come and uh, be her editorial assistant at Harper? So yeah, it's a pretty, like I acknowledge it's a very charmed, uh, it's a, it's a very charmed story. And, and also just to give myself credit, like I made inroads and made connections with people that lasted and made impressions, but then allowed them to want to give me jobs in the future with like a monster that they then hired. But, you know, I do recognize the privilege that comes with the opportunities I was given at the outset. Well, yeah, if you were running amok in the office, no one's going to be calling you up asking you to be the assistant. Like you had to do something right while you were there. Totally. (laughs) Yes. No, I acknowledge that. I, yes, I, I think, yes. Kudos to me for being, yeah, for being, I was obviously good at that and, and now I'm good at this job. <laughs> so yeah, it worked out though. So. And and I think it's so interesting how you say that you would have followed her into whatever she went into, because I think that's kind of like the technique of picking college classes based off of the professor. Yeah. You need somebody who is good at creating that narrative totally. for you so you can care about it enough to learn every day and not get tired of it. So I think that's really lovely how that worked out. Yeah, it really did. I, I don't think much about like where I could have ended up because I ended up where I did. But yeah, I feel very grateful. She and I are not, I mean, you know, life has happened. So she and I are not, you know, don't see each other a ton, but it is it's fun to to really think about how she, you know, she really believed in me and, and gave me my start. So I feel very grateful to her. Um, so let's see here. We have a lot of great questions. Misa, are you ready? It looks like you're on Sure. Well, thanks so much. And this might seem like a really random question. So definitely don't feel pressure to answer it at all. But do you find any connection between books that a writer has had developmentally edited and the speed of publishing? I know, obviously, like the speed of publishing is so dependent on so many things. But do you ever see that connection on your end? So could you define like for just so I know what you're yeah. like developmentally edited meaning? So like if I don't know, like if in let's say a, a, someone has like won a contest, right? Or like, like, or someone has paid for a developmental edit. So usually, I think like before landing an agent um, or so even like before that process, 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that helps. No, no, I just, I want to make sure we're talking about the same terms. I, <laughs> I figured that's what you meant, but I just, spoke more. um, that's a good question. I only in the sense that maybe it takes fewer rounds to, to, with the editor, you know, ultimately, like maybe it's in a better place by that point. I mean, I think any editor who's tried to edit a, so- a sophomore book and any author who's tried to write a sophomore book, like we know that that first book has been through the ringer. So we know that that first book has been through potentially developmental editing or an agent or critique partners or like all of that sort of thing. So we know that that when that book comes in, that first book is probably the thing that's been edited the most and probably in that way is going to be on the fastest track <laughs> to getting, to getting you know, edited and then ultimately into copy editing and then published. Um, second books often just take a lot more time because it's ground up. It's not your baby. It's, it's not your babyest baby, right? And so it's just a different process it can be harder so I don't know if if what you know books that haven't been my sense is that most books that come in that are first but that are debuts have been through so many edits in different ways um but I don't think that that's ever like to such a degree that it's gonna change like hugely change the trajectory of the publishing except in the obvious ways that if it if it has I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be able to say to you, like, it's the difference of one year, six months, different, you know, that sort of thing, except to say that, like, of something has been developmentally edited, chances are it's it's at a it's at a level where maybe there could be fewer edits. But I also think that's something that I don't know. I also sorry, this is such a long winded answer. I also feel like I don't always know exactly exactly what has happened to that manuscript before it comes to me. So like an, an agent or an author may not really say to me, this is the life cycle of the book until this moment. So it's also possible that I, I'm not even aware how the sausage was made. So yeah. But yeah, yeah I think one interesting aspect to that, like I think of it kind of like an MFA, like nice to have, do not have to have. Um, and yeah. I think it also depends because say you've got a book and this is the raw material, there are probably five or six at least different visions for how to edit it, all of which could work. Yeah. And so if that developmental editor has a vision that could work, but it's not the same vision that could work as the editor who ends up acquiring it, yeah. that's a whole different thing than if it's two people on the same page right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and we have a couple of questions here that are similar. So I will make a composite question. They're all very politely stated. And thank you for clarifying. You don't hate agents. We love that. Some Several people are asking how you can get a picture book deal without an agent or if you can think of other ways to go around the getting an agent process. Sure. Um, so I guess my caveat is that, um, so when I took the job at, um, at Harper and then the second job at Harper and then this job, I did make an effort to reach out to people who weren't necessarily like children's books, authors by trade, yet I thought that they had something important to say and I wanted to be able to bring their message to books. So like, For example, this middle grade book about anxiety, like didn't come in to me on submission um, and was something where I approached the writers, one woman who was already a writer and then another woman who ended up writing it, they wrote it together because they were specialists in, you know, anxiety and child psychology and that sort of thing. So part of what I wanted was to be able to create sometimes like what we would call bibliotherapeutic books um, or books that really serve like a pretty specific purpose 
And so I would approach people in that way because they had a point of view or they had a specialty or sometimes they even had a platform. So it wasn't for me approaching people who are necessary. It was almost exclusively not people who are writers by trade. So I want to just like be very clear about the ways that like I would sometimes some the path to publication for some of the people I work with. So just that's my own. So that's one of those that's like you can't that's like lightning in a bottle, right? Like you can't ever do that in terms of just, and I just want to be transparent about that. So in terms of people who I assume, you know, are child psychologists and, and that sort of thing, I mean, I'm a big proponent of literary agents. I think it makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels. Um, if someone is like what I, I guess what I would validate is that the idea of first getting a literary agent and that whole process, and then the literary agent, then needing to query editors. It's like that double level of, you know, it's just like you think you've climbed one mountain and then you see the beyond it and the clouds have obscured like the second enormous mountain. So, um, but I think that there is really, sorry, that's not your question. I don't want to be evasive. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that there is a clear way to get a book deal without an agent. I don't want to say it doesn't happen. It certainly does. I couldn't really name you uh, someone necessarily. I mean, certainly editors are on social media. They see what people are writing. They see what artists are creating. Like editors certainly will find projects that, that for themselves, but part of what we rely on with agents is, um, you did not ask for this length of this question, um, or any of the questions you've asked that were then answered in a very long winded way. But so basically the way that it works, and I mentioned creating agent contacts is like, we, you know, have phone calls, coffees, lunches, drinks, or whatever with agents. And we sit there and we tell them what we're looking for. So we have the ability to say to somebody like, this is specifically what I'm on the hunt for. And then they write it down and put it into a database. And then when they, you know, bring someone into their, you know, bring someone on as a client, they then go back to their database and see, okay, Sarah, Julie, Pink, and Bob decided, you know, they wanted a book and this was the one. So I'm going to send it to them. And so like part of the, what I rely on is agents sending me things based on what I said I wanted, what my tastes were, what they have previously sent to me. They're also monitoring the deals that I make, which are announced in a public forum. So agents do a lot in order to do their homework to figure out so that when I'm reading a submission from an agent, I see why the like raison d'etre for why that thing has landed in my inbox. It's a lot harder for me if I were getting hundreds of submissions from writers who were simply sending things to me and excellent or not excellent or middling or whatever it was there. They don't know what I'm looking for because they haven't sat across from me for 45 minutes and bought me a coffee so that I could go on and on about like what, what type of books I wanted. So it wouldn't scale, which is why like, I don't, you know, on submissions that don't come in from agents, like just, it's not, that wouldn't, that's not an ecosystem that like works for me, given what I'm also trying to do balancing, you know, 10 to 15 books I'm publishing a year. So I don't want to be discouraging of anyone who chooses not to get an agent. And again, I'm not also not trying to be evasive, but I'm, I am explaining like why for me, it's unlikely I would end up publishing something from somebody that's unagented simply, yeah, for all those reasons. And then I'll end by saying some random person from LinkedIn messaged me this week and was just like, I'm in New York. Can I like take you out for dinner? And I have not decided what to do with that email, to be honest. But like, I don't know, you could also send a random email to <laughs> just tell them that like you want them to publish your book, but I, that hasn't worked yet per se, but someone in, is in the middle of trying to convince me that it could. So that's all. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is your chance to be like, that never works. Don't do that and yeah. save all of us. <laughs> right. But like, I also want to say that like I do get emails and I get LinkedIn, you know, like people will, people will find me. So yeah. Once Was I, that, once that I, answer the question even? I, I, yeah, think, I it think you does. did. I mean, so we have a podcast coming up. I think it's, it's kind of in the queue yeah. about someone that when Jessica and I were at a conference together, um, that they, they sold their book at a, a conference and then got the agent afterwards. Sure. So, so yeah. like this kind of famous, I won't say his name cause it's someone else's story, but you know, a very famous, like you, Sarah, high powered, influential yeah. person loved this picture book. So he wanted the book. He gave a list to agents. The writer went to the agents and that's how it happened. It can happen backwards if you have a really great meeting or, you know, the the, the world is like, hmm, look at all this energy in the same spot. But I do think it's like, it's easiest to go through the channels <laughs> that are meant to work for writers and editors and everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was answering, I was only imagining in that moment, the idea of just like cold emailing submissions. I hadn't also, and like why that I was think I was explaining why that is not the best route, but definitely conferences, definitely like more stratified networking opportunities is absolutely a way that people are discovered like within the sort of ecosystem. I think also though, I will say we are trying to broaden what that looks like because again, there is a certain privilege to that and there is a certain self-sustaining ecosystem. And so like, what if someone can't pay the money to do those sorts of things? Like, you know, they should not be disadvantaged. And so what are ways that we can, you know, be seeing uh, works from people and really representing voices who, can't, you know, who don't have access to some of the things that other, you know, people may have access to. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a question from Jenny that I think is actually a pretty common question among picture book writers. Jenny's iPhone, come on down. All right. Hello. So I'm just curious why so many agents and editors are looking for um, someone who's an author illustrator as opposed to text only for picture books. Um, and I don't know if that's about the finances of it or if it's just, um, you know, a different kind of preference because you're going to have to juggle two different people to work with. But I'm, I'm curious to know more about that. I don't know that it's necessarily like a preference. I mean, I would say the majority of picture books aren't author illustrators. I don't know what the actual breakdown is, but obviously somebody who has the ability to do art and text and do both at such a high level that they are as good as, you know, someone who does just text and someone who does just art. Um, but I think part of it is that the synergy when you are the creator of the ideas and then you also get to reflect them in images, I think is a really powerful thing. So I think it's also, um, I wouldn't say there's like a valuation on it. It's better. I think that it is, I think it's a preference only if it's somebody who is excellent at both, you know, like I think we want, we want excellent text and we want excellent art. And if you are excellent at both, then great. I don't, I wouldn't have said there's a preference, I guess. Yeah. We don't have to hire an artist like there's already an artist on board and you again that author illustrator can execute the 360 sort of like degree like holistic vision all in one sort of composite so in that way I guess it's it's a treat <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's different but I, I wouldn't have said I think we for the most part like that's not how things come to us those things do come text only I would say I get very few I mean one percent our author illustrator I mean very small amount but to be fair I mean I also do books with people who aren't necessarily so that may not be that that's probably not representative of the whole industry but I, I would say it's 
probably fewer. It's, you know, it's a very small percentage. So thanks. That That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's actually one of those things that's very, very visible. I think it's like when people want author illustrators, they're usually very loud about it. If they're like, this is the one option <laughs> somehow for some reason that like stands out. Um, and then versus the people who like don't specify, you kind of don't notice because they go under the radar. That's yes, that makes sense to me because I am seeing it a lot. And I was just curious if there was some sort of a preference as a result. Thanks. Yeah. Strong opinions and unusual stories tend to float above the rest. I've noticed, you know, the folks who are like, I got an agent in five hours, you know, that stands out a lot more than like, well, it took two years of hard work. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, uh, Gino, I liked your question about pitching picture books, uh, your part two. Would you be willing to come on down? Sure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, hey, Sarah, it's, um, you kind of started going down this path, so I decided to ask that question. I love the, I love the comment you made about um, every book being like a startup. And I think uh, I, just looking at my challenge, and you started talking about that one book related to anxiety and I'm, I'm working on a character-driven book that's kind of rooted in um, narrative therapy of what I've learned with um, children going through traumatic issues from chronic diseases to abuse. And, and when you've got something, my, my question for that is it's really hard to figure out how to pitch that in the letter for the book when there's, I believe, strong extension ideas for it. So I was just curious what advice you have for something like that. Again, thinking about this idea that a book is, you know, sometimes its lifespan isn't just on that rack. It can develop into other things. Yeah. I mean, I think with something, so when I get something in on submission, that is, that is like a weightier subject. Um, My first thought is, is to look, uh, to find out to what degree the person is an expert in that topic. So like, obviously there are things that we all experience in this world that are just human, you know, big emotions, grief, tragedy, um, you know, trauma to some degree. Um, and so there is that aspect where if we're talk exploring certain, you know, certain of those like shared human experiences in a book, you're going to end up, you don't need to be an expert <laughs> in those things. They are human. However, if a book is meant to really be a teaching tool, or if a book really goes into some like particularly sensitive subject matter, my next question, because my first thought is, how are we going to market and publicize this and and do that? Like, is the person a psychologist? Is the person a teacher, a grief counselor? Uh, what are their credentials? Because when I go to write your bio on the flap of the book, or I put it up for bookshop dot you know dot org and all of that kind of stuff, the parent who's buying the book is going to want to know that the that the subject matter that their child is consuming has been put together in a really thoughtful way that considers their child's developing brain. And so the reality of it is that 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 some sort of a professional, you know, letter is attached to your name or whatever it is, is going to confer a greater sense of responsibility and sort of that. And like, you know how to tackle tough subjects um, with with kids. So that being said, if I were not, if that were not me, and I also felt really drawn to explore a particular subject area, um, you know, I might go out on submission by saying that the book was vetted. Like I might 
take the time, whether it's like a <laughs> my next door neighbor or 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 whoever it is, you know, that I had it vetted by by an expert. Um, and so that would mean a lot to me in the submission. I would need to understand kind of like what is the whole package, you know, what is this going to look like when I tell my sales and market, you know, my sales team, what are they going to then turn around and tell the Barnes and Noble buyer for why this is something that parents would pick up? Because picture books are that, you know, strange thing in children's books where it's not being purchased by the by the human consuming it. So like I'm trying to create, we're trying to create things for children that are purchased by adults. So it's like always the adult that I have in mind in terms of like things like that, because I, I know what they're going to be. I presume to know what they're going to be looking for. So with something like that, I would just like pack it with as much as you have to offer on that level. And then I would take the time to have it reviewed and even include a quote from a child psychologist, a pediatrician, or something like that. Um, just something that makes it feel a little bit more official. And then you also talked about it beyond just like the selling of it. So I think it's a fine line sort of thinking about like, focusing on the one book at hand and that one book, and then also recognizing that something has the opportunity to be bigger. So my advice is always focus on the one book that you're pitching and then maybe a couple sentences to nod to like how you see it, like being a bigger growing beyond just the like first book. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Such great questions. I'm also obsessed by the idea of a book being a startup, you know, but multiple startups, I'm a writer. What are some things when, when you go into building a business, there's very specific things things that you should do to hedge your bets. What are some things the writers here today or listening from home should do just to make this journey easier for themselves, but also for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, it's sometimes really wild to me, just like how many aspects of our culture uh, or even our economy, like a book touches. So you you think about from the printer to libraries, to schools, to bookstores, to, you know, to designers, to artists, like just really amazing to me how many different, you know, things get pulled into the process of a book. So, you know, when I imagine somebody sitting, you know, at home working on their debut novel or, or picture book manuscript, you know, the, it's a very, it's very siloed. So, but if you think of the beginning of the journey of any book, it starts there or in your local cafe or, you know, what have you. And so, so that person is not yet a startup if we follow the analogy. And so if you want to be the most compelling <laughs> product, I guess, um, or, you know, business idea, I think that the things that really go a long way, you know, I know this, you know, social media, I, as a person who isn't the most um, drawn these days to social media or to the curation of, of a social platform, I, you know, it feels a little disingenuous, but like, I think we all know that if you have some sort of platform or you have people who are already follow you or you post content that really moves people and people connect with that obviously will go a long way when you put a book out. Not everybody has that in them. And so I, I understand and respect that. I think that it is, you know, a willingness. There's a certain vulnerability, I think, that is required of being an, an author and a writer, not only to create the work, but then to connect with people on it. So I think that there, you sit there and you're like, well, I would be delighted to do 50 store visits in every <laughs> morning show you put me on and and yeah sure that would be great if if that was what we were looking at but like the reality is that it's a lot of kind of like small grassroots efforts like in your hometown connecting with booksellers with librarians with teachers i think that um it's also a sense of humility and recognizing that like you are as it's just the reality is like you are one 
person on a list of books for one editor who then is on a list of books with hundreds of other books, you know, at the house. So I think it's getting that sense of scale. I think it's like really when you, the book is in process, you're waiting for edits, like be doing something else. You know, I think the energy that that singularity of focus on one book, like doesn't help anybody. There are things that you can do just to be like a conscientious, like human in a business relationship and, and respecting time and also like sharing what you need and asking what you need, knowing that they're the answer may maybe no to whatever you're asking. So I think there are sort of personality things. And then also, you know, just a kind of willingness, I think, to be open and to hear and to really just like hear where the limitations are and also see where the opportunities are and the balance that that is always required with a book, I think, is knowing that a lot will be asked of you. Like we will ask you to do a lot and you might look at the publisher and say like, you're asking me to do so much. Like, what are you doing for this book? And, and you know, the time that you will spend championing your book and talking about it, you're right. Like we will not match that because like you are meant to be the person like on the ground evangelizing, you know, the incredible story that you created. So those are all a little bit abstract. Maybe there's not like a specific attainable concrete thing. Cause I am not going to say like have the X number of followers or whatever it is. But I think that they're just like as grounded as you can be and as humble and as sort of just like open and porous and receptive to feedback and, you know, honest. Um, Like, I think those are all traits that like really do help the process go better, like on both sides. Yeah. Okay. We have barely any time left. You have been an absolute hero here doing all of this rapid fire answering with nuance. We love it. Thank you. Um, I guess... Just very, very quickly, and then we have a um, a fun question to end on. I think it's fun. You may disagree. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process when you see something cool happening in the world and you're like, that needs to be a book? Oh, sure. Gosh, I'm literally looking at my books and seeing seeing what makes what makes what was. Um, yeah, God, my mind is like always a blank when this kind of stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as reaching out to somebody who's said something interesting or doing something interesting or, you know, has really struck a chord with, you know, the, some segment of our culture. Um, I think for me, it's really around people who seem to be able to articulate what is what feels inarticulable, probably not a word, um, about the human experience that like really touches me. Like I find just like who, like I think about who is inspiring, like who is likely to galvanize children or allow them to feel understood or, or let them feel seen. And why is that important? Or like, what are they? saying that I think really is a value. And then, or like who is providing mirth or joy or just distraction or entertainment? You know, like I have a picture book coming out next year, you know, with the parents of, but from, you know, a a dog influencer you know, and it's just like, that's silly. Like I, that is, that is, it's a very good book and it's a very silly book. It's not about anxiety in children. It is about just joy. And so sometimes it is about just, you know, who has, who seems to have captured the attention of fans, readers, watchers, whatever it is, and seems to have, seems to provide a service almost to those people and seeing, and, and then I, when I see the value in that, I'll whatever, DM them, email their publicist or however it goes. 
those, but, and then sometimes it's a long trail from there. Um, but yeah, usually it's just like, I see something in an article or someone sent something to me and it's, that's kind of how the reverse engineering goes. And oddly, I will, I will see if you also see the two things is linked. Um, cause I was finally trying to find a, an explanation for something slippery and well, we'll see what you think about this. The next question is, how do you decide what is going to be a small, medium, and huge book (laughs) and market accordingly? Yeah, so that decision is... It is one of those ineffable things that I wish had a clearer answer. Um, The second question is a little bit easier because by the time any budget would be decided, that is um, marketing, publicity, and sales follow the editor's lead. So when the editor stands up at our, like when we call it launch, um, you may know this, so forgive me if I'm repeating, but three times a year, we present all of the books that are going to be out in a certain season. So like Random House does spring, summer, and fall. So in a couple of weeks, I am standing up in front of the whole division and presenting all of my books that will publish on my summer 24 list. And so after that, and after everybody hears those presentations, they read the books, that is when ultimately the decision is sort of made around exactly how much budget is likely to be allocated to certain titles. But again, it's the public, it's the editor who's sort of like setting the tone. So as an editor, that feeling of, I mean, I I know I use the term small, medium, large, it, it or whatever, that is such a range, it's a continuum. So it's not like those aren't buckets. It's like, that was such a simplified version. But the general idea being not every book can be the biggest, biggest, biggest book. And so for me, it's really thinking about the audience. So certain books I know are really only meant for a very particular segment of of readers, right? So like if I know that a book is only meant to be for readers who like X or care about Y or have the experience of Z, you know, I know that's not going to be as big a book as something that is universal is not even the right word for it. Because if you try to, you know, if you have tried to appeal to everybody, you appeal to no one, but it's a sense for me, just for my list of like it being commercial and other editors would think of something that feels really literary to them or really um, maybe softer or cozier or whatever it is. Like for me, it's sort of these like more commercial stories. Um, And so it's just that sense of, do I think that this is a book that everyone will get and connect with and be like, oh yeah, I know exactly how to sell this market it. Or is it sort of like people who, you know, will see, some people will see it the way I see it. And it's just like, I think this book will help certain kids. I don't think it will help every child. I think every person will see it the way I see it. But I know that a a segment of the population will, and that is important, and that is a reason to publish it. But I know that it's maybe not going to be universal, um, that vision. It's, but there are going to, it's going to be like, some people will see it and those people will find it. And so it's sort of this intuition accordingly about what is likely to hit and resonate. Well, it's this beautiful thing, right? Like you're choosing these amazing projects because you love them so much and knowing yeah. that they make you feel this way. Hopefully right. they make a lot of people feel this way. Yeah. Um, the past couple of weeks, I found myself describing bigger books as the books that have something to sp- say about exactly where we are as a culture right now, which is kind of like what you were saying before. Yeah. Like, I feel like if it's just of this moment in an undeniable way, it feels like a conversation that has to be had. And yeah. that to me propels it forward a little yeah. bit. But there's yeah. so many ways to try to describe that, that energy. Totally. Yeah. That would be a cool thing for like, right. For ever, for an editor to try to distill sort of like, what is that? Big book energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's different for everybody. I I, I love big book energy. Like (laughs) 
Yeah. I'm not going to sing, but I do. That's perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was such a delight. Oh, yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the great questions. Sarah, do you have any consultations left? We could pay for somebody to have a consultation with you if you have any spots um, left. Yeah, I have some. Uh, yeah, tomorrow is all booked, but next next Friday is open. Okay, okay, why don't you think of a trivia question and whoever gets it right in the chat first gets a consultation Ooh. with you. Oh, no pressure. Um, (laughs) While this happens, just a note that um, we're building a new podcast page, which is really cool. You'll be able to leave voicemails if you want to. I'm really excited about this. I love the podcast to like have a little like personal story in the middle. So that is our thought. So if you want to be like, hey, I was thinking about this thing that could be useful for other writers, you know, I would say call us up, but it's not call us up. It's more like hit the button to record, say (laughs) yes, you can have access to my microphone, review it and then send it in. But we love it. That'll be up uh, next week. We, We love your voices we love hearing from you um yeah fun month coming up yeah okay (laughs) so what was the book the very first book ever to receive the caldecott uh in 1938 oh my goodness okay so whoever gets the answer first in the chat wins (laughs) oh we've got a is it good night moon wait make way for ducklings runaway bunny what's what Uh, is the answer oh that's none of these are the answers blueberries for sal no the red pony no, I'd never. Are heard you my of mother? No, I'd never heard of it. So if any, I so if, <laughs> everyone's if, guessing. If I that was like guesses. too obscure. Bambino the clown, um, <laughs> okay. animals of the Bible. Yes, that is what it was. Whoa. Oh, animals of the Bible, Susie! Congratulations. Um, you won a consultation with Sarah. So send us an email. We will make a code. Um, so that you can meet with Sarah Yay. and book a meeting that way. Yay. All right. So everyone, you all got to meet with an editor who's a very big deal today. Now you see why (laughs) I was not wrong. My marketing copy was on point. Um, (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sarah, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank all of you. Thank you all for being here on this beautiful day. Go outside. Go enjoy the sun. Um, and yeah, I want to say something cheesy. May you all have big book energy in your future. Um, yes. All right. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. Bye now. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And that only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.